So we've done joints. Uh, we looked a bit at bones. But what I want to do now is uh, talk about muscles because you're going to actually be sort of touching them. Why is that not working? There we go. Uh, you're going to be you're going to start palpating them next week, and I want to get on top of them as far as muscles go. So, how many people here have taken muscles in like a exercise science class or yeah, so to some degree? Okay. So we know that they're the organ of the muscle system, right? Muscles they do all the work. They're basically half of your body weight, so they they represent a great amount of mass of who you are. They uh, consist of a specialized type of cell that undergoes contraction. So the architecture of the cell is set up in such a way that it allows for shortening. I want you to think of contraction as actually shortening. The other thing about a contraction, the contraction that moves the limb, it is the conversion of chemical energy into mechanical, which results in movements. So chemistry takes over the interactions that occur microscopically inside a muscle. But even from a microscopic perspective, the physical components of a muscle work together to shorten or to create tension in the muscle. And because remember I said uh, to have an effect, the muscle must cross a joint. It therefore shortens, and because it crosses the joint, it will pull one bone towards another in a particular way. Uh, there are three types in the body. I'm going to talk about a couple of the non-skeletal ones here really quickly. But there's either skeletal muscle, which we find anywhere that we're going to be spending all our time on for this class. Uh, we have cardiac muscle, which is the special kind of muscle cell we find in the heart. And then we have smooth muscle, which again is another specialized type of muscle cell that we find in the gut. So we see here cardiac, skeletal, and smooth. So skeletal muscle, this is um, where we find packages of skeletal muscle in particular areas, and that's where we come up with the names we come up with. So long head biceps femoris, uh, or biceps brachii, sorry. Um, uh, longissimus thoracis. Like all these anatomical names we have for muscles is because when we cut a cadaver apart and we looked at it, it was a package of muscle cells together all wrapped nicely into connective tissue. And we were able to kind of pull it away from another one. And we realized it had its own job. And then we named it accordingly to maybe its size or its shape or where we find it and so forth. The, they attach around skeletal uh, system onto bones. We talked about the periosteum. They are considered the longest muscle cells. And uh, within the cell structure, we find microscopic stripes that we know as striations. I'm going to get back to all this stuff later, uh, especially in the second half. So I'm just doing an intro now, and then we'll do muscle fizz in the second half of the course. Uh, although they're activated by reflexes, they are considered to be voluntary. So in other words, you don't realize it, but I want to drink water from this. So my brain can coordinate all the muscles to grab the container to do what I need to do with it, right? And uh, we, we do it under voluntary control. It's not like the hand suddenly goes out and does it all by itself. But at the same time, we do have reflexes. So we see here in this uh, beast of a man that we can see the striations here actually under the skin if you're into... Um, Muscle building competition, that's what they do. Uh, these gentlemen, they build muscle and then they dehydrate the hell out of themselves. So the skin is actually stuck to their muscles. So you can see the striations of muscles through the skin. And that's how these folks are marked, both men and women, when they compete for bodybuilding.
and I don't get it. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know if you guys know this guy. Yeah, so he's developed what I can't stand now is the new gut you find on these guys. I don't get that. Yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. I don't I don't understand it. You see, if you ever see them in the gym, so it used to be we look for this really, you know, tight ab so that the, the six-pack show through. Now they see the six-pack, but they almost look like a beer belly. These guys have like these big, I don't understand not functional have this guy go for a 10k run good luck um cardiac muscle just real quick here we're going to spend a lot more time in it in the amp class but we only find it in the heart it is not voluntary in fact it's kind of cool it actually contracts all by itself so if i were to rip your heart out put it on a table and put oxygen to it the thing would beat all by itself just because that's all the muscles do the minute the minute they develop in baby they start shortening and they don't stop until you die. I'll talk a whole lot about that in AMP. Uh, although influenced by the nervous system, this tissue can in fact contract on its own. We see it here, it's striated, it has uh, lots of connections, which I'll explain in the other class, or, or Joe will. Smooth muscle is another specialization of, uh, of muscle tissue as well. It does not have striations, and basically its role is to move stuff around. So as an example, um, it's called peristalsis. When you eat food, food, digestive food goes into your small intestine. And there has to be some muscular way to take food and move it around and down all 22 feet of gut that you have in there into the large bowel, which then it does its own contractions and eventually until you defecate, right? So that solid material, the contraction occurs in such a way it's actually like squeezing a tube of toothpaste like with a circle and, and pushing solids forward. And it's smooth muscle that does this. Smooth muscle is involved as well in making blood vessels get larger in diameter or narrow in diameter. Um, it's involved. So they're, they're, their innervation of the nervous system is slightly different than skeletal muscle. Uh, smooth muscle is not only under voluntary control. Uh, we can, to some degree, control it in some ways. But... Basically, what happens where skeletal muscle is fast and short-term, smooth muscle is much slower, and, and the contraction is sustained for, for much longer periods. So we see here, no striations. Relaxed, it's out like this, and smooth, it kind of all curls up into a little, little ball. Okay, what do muscles do? Obviously, the number one answer is, makes us move. Jump, do a pick our nose, whatever it is we want to do. Uh, Cardiac muscle is responsible for the movement of blood through the system, and smooth muscle, as I said, propels or moves substances through, through the, the system. So, one of the major functions is actually helping us be able to stand on two legs, sit in a chair, and so forth. So, for the time being, we're going to do a little experiment, right? I want you to sit in your chair with both cheeks to your butt equally producing the weight across the chair. So, both feet on the floor. Think, even if you have to put your hands under your butt and feel your bum bones, want equal weight on both those bones on the chair. Secondly, you've got a hook in your head. So you're going to pull your chest up, but not out. So you've all been taught that this is proper posture. Maybe if you're in the military, but not for us. So the idea is equal weight and the bum. Chest is, and the head is up. And then you lift the chest up, not out. Okay? So all of you stay in that position nice and relaxed. Continue your typing. Don't move. Don't go back to that crap posture I saw throughout the entire classroom the whole time here. Just stay there while I continue talking. Okay?
Stay there. All right, if I catch you, I'll make you sit back up again. So, we are not aware that our muscles are constantly making minor adjustments to maintain our posture or our position. In fact, if you yeah, yeah. in fact, if you had a stroke and the muscles in your thorax became paralyzed and you would slide off that chair. Um, if you've ever been to a long-term care facility, you'll see people in wheelchairs are actually seat belted in because they haven't got voluntary control of their postural muscles and they literally can't control, they will just slide out of a chair. So even in your poor posture that some of you were sitting in earlier, your muscles were still firing without you even realizing which was helping keep you in the seat. Keep sitting normal the way I asked you to. So we can say that they are in a constant battle against gravity. So you know how, you know, this stuff when you're trying to do core work and whatever, that's the muscles that you don't train often, they're weak. And what, when you're doing this, it's because you're boom, 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 you're firing. All these muscle posture muscles are firing because they're helping to try to maintain that balance that you're after when you're standing. Um, it's just that that's happening on such a minute level. Sit back up again. All right. That's it. Good. All right. How many of you are getting sore right now? Feeling tired and weak in the back? Okay. Keep at it. That's good. Uh, the other thing you do is stabilize joints. So if we take, again, the hip versus the shoulder, the hip, because it has a deep joint, it's, it, it doesn't need as much muscular support to be stable. Whereas what you're going to learn with shoulder issues is that the number one problem with shoulder issues most of the time is that it relies almost entirely on ligaments and muscles that cross it to make it function properly. You start to lose those muscles, that shoulder doesn't function very well. In fact, if you were to watch my shoulder, and I'm five months post-surgery, I still don't have enough strength in my shoulder. Certain external internal movements, my head and my humerus is actually falling in and falling out of the movement because I'm still not quite stabilized, and that's kind of what my physio is. I still try to get muscles a little bit stronger to stabilize the, the joint. So same thing, if you've had knee accidents or you've had physio, once the surgery or whatever, has done anybody here at cruciate ligament work or whatever? And you had to go to physio and they made you do all kinds of strength training, right? To get, they probably told you that that knee has to be five times stronger than the other knee, right? And they're absolutely correct because you have to restabilize. And the only way after surgery we can do that is to make the muscles that cross that joint stronger. Uh, generating heat, that's why we shiver when we're cold because the byproduct of muscle contraction is, or one of the byproducts of muscular contraction is heat. Uh, it helps maintain the homeostatic parameters of our core temperature. Muscle accounts for 40% 40 40 of us by mass. Therefore, it has a large influence on the maintenance of temperature. Okay? That's why when you run, you sweat. Because you're burning so much heat in those muscular contractions of an exercise period. Um, you have to, your, your core temperature is getting so hot that you have to start sweating to get that heat off of you. That's why it's so hard and so dangerous to run in hot, hot days because your, your ability to release heat out of your body becomes very difficult. Additional, it helps protect some organs. Believe it or not, the body has actually put your abdominal muscles here to help protect the organs behind because there's no bone here. And, and the, there's another other couple of modifications, but ultimately they're here to help protect the organs because there's no, there's no hard bony things here. Smooth muscle helps to form valves and sphincters. Thank God for sphincters get messy in here without them. Um, but when I'm talking about protection, here's a muscle here that runs a little bit from the ASIS of the hip, hip all the way down to the inside of the knee. It is called sartorius. 
And some thoughts are with sartorius, it actually follows the same line as the femoral artery. So there's some that believe from an anatomical perspective, sartorius, one of its roles is also to protect minorly the femoral artery of the leg. So every muscle in the body, it's alive. So it has metabolic needs. In other words, it needs food like, like any of us do. So the, the first thing that a muscle has to have is a blood supply because it's a blood supply that's going to bring to that muscle all the things that it requires chemically or vitamin-wise or, or electrolyte-wise. The second thing is uh, for a skeletal muscle to contract because it said it's voluntary, it needs some way to communicate with the nervous system or the higher centers such as the brain. So there also then has to be a nerve that innervates into the muscle so that there can be a communication directly between the skeletal muscle and the nervous system. So we say usually each muscle is supplied by one nerve or more, an artery, and one or more veins. If, you may say it seems a bit contradictory, generally speaking, if a muscle has three heads, for example, the majority of the time a single nerve involves all of them. But sometimes a muscle may have two heads in such a way that when we compare the two heads, there's, there's variability in what they do. So that muscle may be innervated by two different nerves, in other words, from two different levels of the nervous system. So there are a couple of muscles like that. But generally speaking, a nerve leaves the spinal cord and goes to a muscle to speak to it. And it's called a motor neuron, and that's what we're talking about. Once they enter into the central part of the muscle, both the, the blood vessels and the nerves then branch out accordingly to innervate all that tissue as much as possible. So nerves spread out to, to innervate all the minute bundles of muscle cells, and the blood vessels spread out to supply blood supply to all the areas of this metabolically active muscle tissue as well. In skeletal muscle, each fiber is supplied by a nerve ending that controls its activity. So it tells it whether to contract or not, or even keeps the tone as to how much a muscle stays in a minor amount of contraction. Skeletal muscle has lots of blood, and this is why with the blood supply in and then venous return, because blood requires so much, or muscle requires so much blood, training can result in an increase of larger veins on the surface, yes? So we see, you know, some individuals, both genders, they work out a lot, they get very veiny. Why? Because there's an increase of vascularity to that muscle to help meet its metabolic needs as we train. There is extensive venous return as there is considerable metabolic wastes created by skeletal muscle. So a byproduct of contraction is not only heat, it's also things like lactic acid and so forth that needs to be flushed out and taken to other parts of the body to be dealt with. The attachments, um, muscles are attached to bone, the periosteum, which I said earlier, or other structures in at least two places in relationship to the joints they are to affect. I will repeat, two places in relationship to the joints they affect. Okay? So we, I said already once, the major rule is for a muscle to have an effect on a joint, it must do what? It has to cross it. Okay, if a muscle does not cross a joint, it does not affect said joint. All right, so in the case of the knee here, for example, in the femur and the tibia, if we use the quadriceps, which are in the front of the leg, they cross the knee. 
So therefore, they affect the knee. Do they cross anywhere else, the quadricep muscles? Yes, also crosses the hip. So these are the things you have to start thinking about when you look clinically at a patient. Not only does the quadricep affect extension at the knee, it also affects flexion at the hip because it crosses the hip joint. So remember that. A muscle must cross a joint in order to have an effect on that joint. So when a muscle works, it has to have a fixed part and a movable part. So the movable part always moves towards the fixed part. Make sense to everybody? Okay. So we also have muscles that can do two actions. If we continue with the knee, if I fix the part of the muscle that crosses the hip, I can do just leg extension. I can also fix the part of the knee to do that, right? I haven't flexed, I haven't extended the knee, it's already extended, but quadriceps has contracted. Yeah, it's from my camping, like, I have lots of socks, you wait. Um, it brings the leg up, having fixed distally and, and the moving parts here. Some muscles can't do that because they only cross one joint. But so when we talk about fixed and moving, in some cases that can change, right? So I can have my abdomen fix at the hip and pull my chest forward, or I can fix it at the top and pull up my pelvis, right? Depending on what I want to do with it, okay? Uh, so in most cases, one bone is said to be fixed, immovable or less movable, and the other is movable. The part of the muscle's tendon that is attached to the fixed bone is traditionally called the origin. But that's the problem. If you have muscles that can do, can fix either end, how do you call one an origin and one an insertion? Because traditionally, the origin is to the fixed part and the insertion is to the movable part. So a lot of authors no longer use origin and insertion. They use what? Any idea? Yeah. Right, proximal and distal. So a proximal attachment or distal attachment. The thing is, you'll find both. And even in my test, you'll find both, okay? Because it's getting in the habit of realizing that there's, again, there's more way to say cat, right? So it, it's something I want you to think about is that right, there's always two attachments. Uh, I will never ask a question and say, you know, which of the following is the origin of longhead biceps? I, I, that's too easy. I might ask a question about, Mrs. Jones today says that she can't move her arm and blah, 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 which part of the muscle may not be functioning properly, Okay. That's what, how you're going to get questions from me. Uh, in the limbs, the origin typically lies proximal to the insertion. So due to this configuration, some authors use proximal and distal attachments rather than insertion and origin. So <clears throat> if you see contradiction to insertion and, um, and origin and proximal and distal, neither of them is wrong. Just be aware that you know, they can be either or. Uh, we must remember that although we might say that an origin is fixed, in some situations the origin can move with the insertion fixed. And I will be interchanging the terms for attachments throughout the course. The thing to remember, though, ultimately is every muscle has two attachments on either side of whatever joint it's crossing or joints it's crossing. So we see here long head biceps. Here at the top and short head, two heads. Long head comes up and, and goes through into this part of the shoulder joint where the short head comes to the coracoid process, 
crossing the shoulder. Distally, it comes down and crosses the elbow down here to the radius and the aponeurosis of, of the, of, in this part here. So it ultimately can flex the shoulder or flex the elbow. So long head biceps can either do this or this or both, right? Uh, gastrocnemius here, uh, same thing. Your calf muscle crosses the ankle joint here into the calcaneus, also crosses distal or uh, approximately to the knee joint, so it's a two-cross muscle. So it can it helps with some flexion of the knee and is also a plantar flexor, pointing toes of the foot. And then sternocleidomastoid here, um, it crosses a number of joints and has all its own effects as far as that goes. Any questions? Am I going too fast? Okay, so it's finger time. So, if what I'm talking about, you completely you can completely understand it to the point you can turn to your partner beside you and explain the whole thing. You will do four fingers. If um, you could understand what I'm talking about but not quite explain it to your partner, it's three. If you understand some parts of what I'm talking about, it's one or two. And if you don't have a clue what the hell I'm talking about, it's one. So show me your fingers. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Show me. Put, put your hands up in the air. Okay, not bad. Questions then? Questions? Come on, what I tell you? It's not bad to have questions. I can talk. I love talking. I can just keep going. Or you don't know so much, you don't even know what the hell to ask. <laughs> I'll keep going then. So, a single muscle fiber is called a myofiber, which is a single muscle cell. So, when we look at a cell, which we're going to in anatomy, you know, a cell has a membrane and organelles inside it and so forth, right? A muscle cell is exactly the same thing. It's got cell parts to it. The thing that's different is um, there are some specialization of proteins within the cell called actinomycin. And the second thing is, instead of the artist's rendition of that beautiful round cell that you see in, in, in the... Uh, oh, what they do there? There we go. I could do that. Um, you know, the artists have them nice and round. Muscle cells are long and thin. Okay? Some, some differences. So because they're long and thin, we call them fibers rather than muscle cells. So if you see fiber, it still relates to a muscle cell. Each fiber is an elongated cylinder, which may extend the full length of the muscle. So in some cases, think of your biceps running from here to here. You have a single muscle cell that may be that entire length. That's how long the cells can be. <clears throat> so we see them here. This is the breakdown. We'll get into this, this all this stuff second half, but understand that all these little dark red things are muscle cells that are running the entire length of, of the actual muscle itself. Any questions on that? <laughs> are you sure? I'm going to keep going. Part D. So the next thing is um, we have to look at what muscles do. I've kind of alluded to it to some degree to say that a muscle has to cross a joint in order to have an effect on it. But how does it do that? So we have types of contraction that can happen. Um, and it's not just one. So when we talk about isotonic, that's sort of your traditional, shall we say, weightlifting. So as the muscle contracts, it shortens. 
Always remember that when you know the action of a muscle and you're trying to train it, ultimately what you are trying to do is bring one attachment closer to the other, whatever that is. Okay? Whatever the muscle is, always if you're, if you're trying to shorten it, whether it's through resistance or just moving, movement, the one attachment always moves towards or closer to the other. So when the muscle is working and shortening, we call that concentric work. So I have a dumbbell with these big pipes of mine, and I do an arm curl. And what's happening to my biceps muscle? Is it getting shorter? Yes. So that is considered a concentric isotonic contraction. Okay? Now I can do what's called negative work. And sometimes you'll see that in the gym where I'll cheat, I'll get a heavy weight up here, and then I'll control that weight down. And as I'm doing that, as I'm controlling it, my muscle, my biceps are still contracting, but it's contracting as it gets longer. That is called eccentric contraction. Everybody follow me so far? Shortening is concentric. Lengthening under control is considered eccentric. Some, key, some interesting things about um, eccentric versus concentric. Some of the research suggests that you build more muscle mass doing eccentric work. But um, everybody here heard of DOMS? Okay. Uh, eccentric work produces DOMS way more than concentric work. So what do you think was required to do this from a clinical point of view? Maybe you want to guess? Before I start someone training, what do I need to make sure they can do? If I'm going to give them this kind of exercise. Yeah, well done. Normal range of motion, right? So from, from a prescriptive point of view, if someone comes to me and they've got really limited range due to weakness and so forth, I'm not going to go right to this. This is too hard for them to do because they can't do the full range, right? So I might go to the next one. Isometric contraction. Isometric contraction is an increase of tension in a muscle without any movement at all. So when I started my strength training after my shoulder surgery, all my work was eccentric. So I was placing load on the muscles of my shoulders without any movement. I was just holding it. So maybe, maybe uh, you know, I, I get to here and I just hold a, a, a weight and not move and see how long I can hold it for a count of 30 before it gets to be too much. That is an isometric contraction. I, um, iso meaning equal, so the muscle or the, the limb is not or the joint is not moving at all, so the length remains the same. So here we are, shortening is concentric, lengthening is eccentric. Ultimately, though, they're still both isotonic contractions because there is lengthening and a shortening that is occurring in the muscle belly. Whereas isometric is, tension is created in the muscle, but there is no, no movement of muscle fiber, so the muscle is neither shortening nor lengthening. Um, <clears throat> when we look at the interaction, we have to understand that there is um, a muscle that is primarily responsible for a particular movement. There are muscles that work with that one that is working the most. And then there are muscles in the body that counteract the prime mover. That's what we're going to talk about here. So muscles almost always function in groups rather than singly. When a particular body movement is needed, groups of muscles are coordinated to the single function. Right? So 
uh, when, and that you're not even aware that you're doing that, right? I, I give you a weight to do, and you start to do it. And if you're like me, you're in the gym, and you see a guy do, guys doing arm curls like this, right? You know what pisses me off about that? These freaking guys have arms like this, right? And I'm absolutely perfect, and I don't have that. But you see it all the time, right? It's a cheat. So when we talk about that they work together, we have to kind of break them down. So the first is, uh, we call them an agonist, a synergist, and an antagonist. The agonist represents the muscle that it is what's called the prime mover. So it's the one that's responsible for the movement that you're asking to have happen. So it's the muscle which acts the most to initiate and maintain the movement desired, for example. Uh, I can't remember your name. Come on up. Brock, come on up. Actually, take your shirt off. So, I used him for a reason because he's got some, he can show some, it's always great in massage because there's always guys that are athletic and they got lots of muscles, which helps my case. So, let's do deltoid. Deltoid has three heads, okay? has a posterior, a middle, and an anterior head. When I try to isolate between the three of them, anterior deltoid is more involved in internal rotation. Posterior deltoid is more involved in exterior rotation or, um, um, or lateral rotation. And middle head is more responsible for abduction. So bring your arm up here. So in, if I don't add a lot of load to his arm, He's likely going to use middle head more than anything. In fact, you can probably see it kind of sticking out here more than the other two heads, yes? Okay, so I'm going to push down. You're going to resist me. So as I add more resistance, what's going to happen is as I start to overload the medial head, the anterior and posterior will start to help out, okay? So I'm going to push, and you can see them pop out just a little bit here and here, yes? Okay. Now, the other thing is um, the anterior head is also a, a flexor. Posterior head is also an extensor, okay? So they all work within the context of being prime movers within the same muscle. So all of a sudden, I say that the synergist is the muscle that assists in the prime mover. So two things can happen. First is the anterior and posterior heads do act as synergists to the middle head in abduction, right? But what might help the shoulder? So if his... If his uh, deltoids are kind of weak and he's attempting to do this, what might he do to cheat? What other muscle might come in to help that movement occur? Any idea? So you watch, you stay there for that. Watch me. So I'm weak and I go like this. Traps, right? So traps is going to try that movement. We cheat all the time and we don't even know that we're doing it because what the body does from an efficiency point of view it kind of recognizes subconsciously the work that needs to be done. And it can, and this is how amazing the brain is, it can coordinate the other muscles to work at the same time to help the work get done. So that if you do overload a muscle, overload a muscle, um, it, the, the brain will figure out, oh, this is too much for that. I'm going to start adding in the other guys. Because watch, relax. Okay, so there's his traps. Just do abduction for me. Okay, not bad. No, stay there. Stay up there. Okay, not bad, but there. Now watch. Push, 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 push. It's firmer. Okay? And he doesn't even realize he's including it because the brain has already figured out that I need to add this in because this is getting overworked. Okay? Thanks. So you have an, 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 yeah, you can put sure things. You have an agonist, which is what's considered the prime mover. So what we've done from any, any physics folks in the house? 
Okay. This is something you really have to remember for the rest of the course. Muscles are stupid. Okay? Muscles are real stupid. Uh, what happens is um, uh, it gets, a, it gets a, a message from the brain through its innervation. It contracts. Okay? Great. It is where the muscle is that causes the movement. In other words, it is where the muscle is in relationship to the joint that causes the movement that where we think that it does. So from a scientific point of view, when I take a cadaver apart and I look at a muscle that crosses the joint, I have a sense of where it is in relationship to the axis. Does everybody understand what that means? So, that's my time. Okay, I'll do this real quick before we go. So let's say uh, we're talking about a muscle that's an external or an internal rotator, okay? Uh, got more room over here. So what's an axis? What's an axis? Ultimately, what's an axis? Yeah. Yeah, point of rotation, right? Steering wheel, steering column, right? Okay. Point of rotation is the column, correct? Okay. So we have something that can either go this way or this way. All right? Now, I need a muscle to make that happen. So, I said muscles are stupid. They just contract. It's where they are in relationship to the axis that they cause what they cause. So, if I have a bone down here, and I have a muscle that attaches here, and it shortens, remember, the attachments get closer together, the muscle on this side is going to turn that wheel which way? Right. It's going to make the wheel go this way, correct? Whereas if I have a muscle that's attached here, which way is it going to rotate it? Remember that. That's so important. Muscles are stupid. It's where they are in relationship to the point of axis or the joint. It is the responsibility that they are. So when we say that something is a prime mover, it is because of where it is in relationship to that joint that it's the prime mover. Synergists cross the joint very similarly, but not quite the same. Just let me finish this last slide. Okay, so for example, shoulder abduction, deltoid is the agonist. In other words, the deltoid muscle is the major shoulder abductor. Pectoralis major, believe it or not, is a shoulder abductor, and supraspinatus, which is a shoulder joint, a shoulder muscle in the scapula, and upper trapezius, as I showed you. So this is the muscle. So when we're doing these in the gym, we are, think we're hitting deltoids, and we are. But you have to recognize that if we, because this is what drives me crazy in the gym, guys think it's all about how big the freaking dumbbell is, right? Oh, I gotta look like I'm really doing work here, right? I come along and I use five pounds, okay? Because what I'm doing is I'm trying to make the movement perfect. I'm trying to get rid of these to do this. That, folks, is remedial exercise when someone's injured, right? If I have a normal functional joint, I'll load it like crazy and do all that cheating. That's fine. But with me, because of my shoulder surgery, you will see me in the gym. I'm using, you know, arm curls of 12 and a half pounds. Uh, shoulder abduction of five because I am trying to get the shoulder rehabbed properly by making individualizing muscles to work. So when we do exercise or when we're trying to learn muscles, 
if I tell you uh, blah, blah, blah muscle is an external rotator, then I'm telling you that it's probably the primary rotator for the joint that it crosses. So we see here, they're all here. Last one before you go, antagonist. Antagonist is a muscle that does the exact opposite of the prime mover. So the classic example is biceps versus triceps. Everybody got me followed? Biceps does this, triceps does that. Yes? Okay? So the muscles that resist the prime mover actions and are responsible for movement in the opposite direction. What's interesting is, what's amazing is, in order for an agonist to contract, the nervous system has to inhibit the antagonist to prevent it from contracting, thus allowing the agonist to fully shorten. I can't do this until the nervous system shuts down that. Everybody follow? Okay. So I can't do a full arm curl unless my nervous system completely inhibits the triceps muscles, which allows for the full range. Questions? Finish this off next week. We'll get into muscles as far as that goes. We're probably a couple slides behind, but I had to do a bit of introduction with you today.